23 and 24 today. So, if you've been uh, following the news lately, you've probably seen a lot about Israel and Palestine. It's been quite remarkable of these just brutal massacres of women and children going on. And really, it's been an eye-opening to me to just see a very brief taste of the evil that is in Canaan. Uh, the evil of these people and the evil of that world that God used Israel to judge them because this is who those people are and always have been. This is the evil of that world. Um, it's also been some pretty remarkable stuff that lines up with some end time things. We don't want to go too much into that because people have been hoping for the end of the world since the beginning of the world, but it's just been very interesting, I'm just saying. Right. It's also interesting that this happened at this point in time and we're discussing this because for all intents and purposes, today we, we finish Abraham's story. Uh, this will be the last time we really see him do anything. And um, the first thing he's going to do is mourn. And so in a way, Abraham will be mourning just as the Israelites are mourning uh, today and as they have been for a while now. Um, but today we'll see him end his walk of sanctification, the last thing that he does, and we'll see him find a wife for his son Isaac. And I'm going to try to pull out some principles as Abraham buries his princess, and then we'll see if we can find direction in Isaac's wedding. So we'll start with seeing Abraham's walk of sanctification come to a close. Chapter uh, 23, verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep. So we see that Abraham sheds tears over the loss of his wife. These are actually the first tears recorded in the Bible. This is the first time someone will cry. And what we see is that tears and grieving are, are meant to help us. They're a gift from God to help us heal and to help us draw closer to him. Uh, in the end, we are promised that God will wipe away every tear. He will take care of all of our sorrows. This is the first time we see those sorrows in the Bible. And for us, we need to remember that we do not grieve like the rest of the world. When we lose someone, when something bad happens, we remember that death is not the end. It's simply a change of address. We mourn with the hope of Christ. And it's important to remember that. We also see Abraham's testimony after losing his wife, after his hardships, verses 3 through 6. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. So we see Abraham gives his testimony here, and he declares himself as a stranger, as a pilgrim, a traveler in a strange land. He finally admits he does not belong here. He does not belong here. We can actually compare this and directly relate it to 2 Timothy 4.6, where Paul calls himself a drink being poured out. This is Abraham, the last thing he's doing. He knows it's coming to a close. Abraham is at the end of his life, and he's realizing this is not his home. Instead of a drink being poured out, he is more like a tent being taken down. A tent 
being taken down as he's going to travel to the next area where he belongs. What's interesting is that Abraham's testimony has been damaged in the past by his actions. He's done things that make him unreliable, and he's done things that make sure that people would not listen to him. But now he's accepted. He's among them. He's with them. He acts as a good witness to his neighbors. He acts as a good witness to his neighbors. A believer's worst moments, like when he loses his wife, tend to be when the world judges you the most. A believer's worst moments tend to be when the world judges us the most. And we have to rely on the supernatural grace from God, the supernatural grace from God that allows us to find peace and even joy in those moments, in those moments of sorrow. Because again, for us, remember, we are also travelers in a strange land. This is not our home. This is not where we belong. If we become too familiar with this world, if we become too much of a part of it, we become like Lot in Sodom. And we don't want to be like Lot in Sodom. We'll also see here Abraham's tact. Let's look at verses 7 through 16. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the son of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the son of Heth, all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me, the land is worth 400 sequels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abram weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So you have to realize something about Eastern hospitality at this point in time, because this is kind of a weird back and forth. Um, realize that there is no intention of giving a gift here. That when he says, please take it, it's yours, take it, he's not really meaning it, it's yours, take it. It would be an embarrassment for Abraham to take that land. It would be an embarrassment for Eastern hospitality for him to take that. Really what we see is that Abraham buys the field and he's actually following very honest and ethical business practices. He's not expected to take that land as a gift. Instead, Abraham is honestly paying the amount he says, right? He gives him a price and Abraham pays that price because there's no, there's no uh, actual reason that he would give that as a gift. So he pays by what, what he's doing, what Abraham is doing is being honest and he's being ethical. He's following proper rules because what we need to remember is that honesty and obedience are more important than material gain. Honesty and obedience are more important than material gain. Uh, understand that for most of the world, this is simply not the case. It's simply not the case. Most of the world will brag and boast about what they gain through dishonest means through their craftiness and their cunning. It's to their pride to be crafty and to be cunning and to take advantage of people. Uh, this is a very counterintuitive, countercultural thing that Abraham does here. And he gives him, gives him the asked price. He doesn't even barter with him to get him to go down on it. 
And so all Abraham has left is this tomb. Verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were, decreed, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went to the city of this gate. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is, that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So what we see here is the true bleakness of a world without Christ. All these people can see and all they can focus on is a field and a cave. And in a world without Christ, the only thing you own is your tomb. In a world where you have not accepted Christ, the only thing you will own is your tomb. Abraham knows and trusts that God will take care of him. Abraham knows death is not the end of his story. And for us, we need to realize the same thing. Life without Christ is bleak. It's very sad. We were once lost, but by the grace of God, he has pulled us out of that. We own relationship with God, and all he asks us to do don't leave the other corpses behind. Reach out for them. Don't leave them behind. There but for the grace of God go I. Because life without Christ is bleak. And so this brings us to Abraham's last real act on earth. Finding a bride for Isaac. And we're going to see this. This is, a, this is going to be a different one because we need to see ourselves in a couple of different ways here. There's a couple of ways that this chapter comes out, uh, and hopefully you see this as another sign of the coming of Christ. So we'll start with the will of the Father, chapter 20, ver 24, verses 1 through 9, the will of the Father. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, whom among I dwell. But you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So Abraham has some qualifications for this woman. First of all, she cannot be a Canaanite. Under any circumstances is Isaac to marry a woman from Canaan. It, she needs to be within Abraham's family. And we see throughout the Old Testament as the Jews continue as they move into there, we see that intermarriage brings contamination and apostasy. They start to walk away from their faith. They leave the one true God because they intermarry. Think Solomon. Solomon's father was David, one of the godliest men to have ever lived. 
And by the end of his life, Solomon is really no different from the Canaanites because he's married so many women and become like the world around him. Under no circumstances is Isaac to marry one of these women. In fact, we're given a similar command. We're given a similar command. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? We are also told, don't intermarry with people who don't share the faith in God. Your life is going to be very difficult. Many people do it, and many people can work through it, and that not saying it never happens. I'm just saying it's very much more difficult than if you marry someone who shares a belief in God. The second one is not to take Isaac from the land, not leave his covenant home. And what I would think, this isn't said, but what I would think is because he learned his lesson with Lot. Don't take him back to a city. Don't take him back to some place he can be comfortable. Keep him here where God has wants him, where God has told him to be. That's what I would think. It also could just be something as simple as traveling in this point in time can be very dangerous. They could be met on the road and attacked. But Isaac is not to be taken from this land. What we should see is that the bride is a gift. The bride is a gift to the son from the father. The bride is a gift to the Son from the Father. It's done to the glory of the Father. And hopefully we recognize the parallel of Christ and his church. The church, Christ's bride, is also a gift to the Son from the Father. Okay. This is going to be a long chunk of reading, so stick with me. But we next have this really interesting servant character. Really interesting servant character. We're going to go from 10 all the way over to 49. So stick with me. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels near down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, Lord God, master of Abraham, please give me success this day. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to say to, to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, that she says, drink, and I will also give your camels drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets from her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? And tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milka's son, whom she bore to Nahor. 
Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord of God, my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. And there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house, to my family, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom you before the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way and you shall take a wife for my son for my family and my father's house you will be clear from his oath when you arrive among the family for if they will not give her to you then you will be released from my oath and this day I came to the well and said O Lord God of my master Abraham if you will now prosper the way in which I go behold I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water I say to her please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink and she says to me drink and I will draw for your camels also let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed to my master's son but before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said, Please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will go to your camels also a drink. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her, and she said, Who daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Buell and her son whom milk aboard him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the braces on her wrist, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God, my master Abraham, who led me in the way of the daughter to take the daughter of my master's brother for her son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Whew, I knew it was going to be a long one. <laughs> but the servant is kind of mixed up in how we're going to talk about him. So we kind of got to do all of it at once because there's a few things we need to see here. All right, first, we need to see his obedience. He does what his master tells him to do. And this is a key point throughout the entire Bible. Throughout the entire Bible, the Old Testament especially, and the New Testament just kind of flips it on its head. But the idea is that faith equals obedience. You cannot have faith without obedience to God. You cannot have obedience without faith. They go together, and they have to go together. As soon as you try to separate them, you've got all kinds of weird problems cults and lies and wrongness in your life. You cannot have faith without obedience. 1 John 2.4 says, He who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's John, the apostle John, who's all about love, calling people a liar because they refuse to obey. 
You cannot have faith without obedience. At the same time, we are not strong enough to have obedience without faith. Romans 7.19 For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Our sinful flesh is too much for us. It is the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit which allows us to obey his word. But we need and we must obey his word. Faith in God means obedience to his word. I don't think I can, I don't think I can take this enough because our world has messed this up. For us, this means following his moral law. Hopefully, you read Leviticus a lot, right? Leviticus? No? Okay. As you read Leviticus, anything that has the death penalty is a moral law. That's something you have to hold to. That's something you're still expected to hold to. We may not put people to death now. That's not what we're asked to do. But those are still rules that we need to keep. Anything in the New Testament that is clearly defined and stated, those are rules that we are expected to keep. You see, following God's law and being expected to follow God's law and telling other people to follow God's law, that's not legalism. It's Christianity. It's not legalism. It's Christianity. We are expected to keep God's law. Faith and obedience go together. They have to. And we see that in this servant as he does what his master has told him. This also means living a life apart from the rest of the world. We are, we are told, we are commanded to be of the world, in the world, but not of the world. This also means loving others more than we love ourselves. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we always do it perfectly. And I'm not saying you have to do it perfectly to be a Christian. What I'm saying is the Holy Spirit works in us so that we can do it. And we should be seeking to do it and trying to do it every day. Next with this servant, we see his devotion. The same devotion we are called to have. Just like we're called to have the same obedience, we're called to have the same devotion. In this, in this section I just read, about 39 verses, he says, my master, 19 times. His full focus, single-minded focus, laser-like determination is on his master, is on the job that he's been given by his master. He does humble things, very humble things. He takes some camels and some stuff and goes up and gets them water. That's it. He does very humble things that the master has asked him to do. Because the master cares for him, he does it. He acted on the master's orders, not his own. He didn't go door to door. He didn't go seek out this woman on his own. He just went as the master told him to. You see, he's not expected to move mountains. He's not expected to do great, amazing, masterful things. Because God will do those things. God moves the mountains. He's expected to do the humble things and let God do the heavy lifting so that he can go back and tell people, you will never believe what God did in my life. I was saying this prayer and before I'd even finished it, right? That's what he's telling Laban already. 
before I'd even finished saying my prayer, here comes Rebecca. God had already done it. God does all the heavy lifting, not us. He asks us to do simple things. Simple things. Preach. Parent. Teach. Love each other. Simple things. He does the great works. We also see that servant, because of his devotion, he brought great things to prove his master's greatness. Yes, he brought treasures, a nose ring, a bracelet, earrings. He brings all these jewelries. He brings all these treasures and riches to give to the bride. We bring similar things, namely and specifically the gospel. We bring people the news, the good news, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again three days later. That we are dead to sin. That's the treasure that we bring to people. We are called to the same devotion to our master, a single-minded focus on God, to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, fully and completely devoted to him. And we are called to faithfulness in simple, humble acts. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God does the work. He takes our foolishness and he makes it mighty. He takes our weakness and he is mighty. We bring great things to the world around us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proof in our lives, you will not believe what God did for me today. I was praying and before the prayer was out of my mouth, here comes Rebecca. You will not believe what God has done for me. And finally, with the servant, see his faith. The same faith that we are called to. He gets to this point, he doesn't know what to do. Should he go into this place? Should he start looking for women? Should he start handing out surveys? Should he start, you know, gathering a bunch of people? He doesn't know what to do. What do I do? So he stops. And he waits. And he prays. He stops. He waits and he prays. And he has patience. He has patience to let God work. To let God work. Now, the servant God uh, must have been thankful he didn't have to wait long, right? He didn't have to wait long. Some of us have to wait a much longer time. But he had all that travel time to start thinking about this. What am I going to do when I get up there? I'm just looking for a random woman in this city that's supposed to be connected to this master. How are you going to find her? But he gets there and he waits and he prays. He has patience and when he gets into the house, when Laban takes him in, we'll get to Laban later on, right? When he gets to Laban's house and takes him in, he refuses to eat. He will not eat until he has spoken his task and he has told them what he wants. Because when the work begins, when the work begins, the servant's determined focus is on seeing his master's work complete. When the work begins, the servant's determined focus is on seeing his master's work complete. We'll also notice that he speaks of Isaac, not himself. He talks about how great Isaac is, how great his master is, how great Isaac is. He doesn't talk about how great he is. He doesn't talk about all the great things he has or that he's done. His focus, again, is on his master. He also does not force or coerce anyone. 
He's not telling her lies. He's not making up stories. He's not doing all the things that men can do to confuse women. He's not doing all the things that you would expect him to do to make sure that she comes with him. He gives her facts. He gives her facts and he lets her decide. We are called to the same faith. Called to the same faith. We must wait for the Lord to work. Wait for him to work. We must see his work to completion, no matter the cost to ourselves. For this servant, it costs him a meal. For us, it might cost much more. It might cost much more. When we preach, when we speak of God, we speak of the master. We don't speak of ourselves. How great he is, not how great I am. And the key part here that we have to understand We have to let the Holy Spirit work. God does the heavy lifting. I cannot bring someone to faith in God. I cannot do it. The Holy Spirit does it. We cannot replace it with lies, with stories, with false information. We tell the truth. We share the gospel. And the Holy Spirit works in their lives. The Holy Spirit works in their hearts. But in the servant, in the servant, we should see our actions reflected back at us. Our actions, a call to obedience, a call to devotion, and a call to faith. What we do, we are servants of the master. But as we go through here, we're not going to switch focuses. And we're no longer focused on the master. We're now going to focus on the bride. The bride, which is where we will see our faith reflected. Verses 50 to 60. 50 to 60. Then Laban and Bethulah answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And the men... And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away, so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. And then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah and their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. What we see in Rebekah is faith, a faith. The bride must choose to go to Isaac. The bride must choose to go to Isaac. This is a decision every non-believer must make in their lives. She had heard the word of the groom. She had seen all the great things. She held in her hand the jewelry that he offered her, and he had given her all the great and amazing things. But she still had to make this choice. God uses our foolish preaching to reveal him. She had seen the proof of his greatness. God had used the servant's living witness. 
But she had never seen Isaac. She had never seen Isaac. She still didn't know what she was getting herself into. Just as Jesus says in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, God had chosen Rebekah, but Rebekah had to choose Isaac. There's this weird connection here. It's hard for us to understand. We can't fully understand it. God is sovereign. He is in control. But man has a responsibility. The responsibility to choose God, to choose Christ. God's sovereignty does not overrun man's responsibility. Man's responsibility does not overrun God's sovereignty. It's almost a contradiction that you have to hold because we just don't understand it. But that's the truth of things. You see, this is a message about not delaying in choosing Christ. Do not delay to choose Christ. I will go, she says, immediately. They want her to stay. Laban and his wife are trying to get more stuff out of the servant. He's got to have more in his bags. Let's see if we can get more out of him. Do not delay. Let me go back to my master. And she says, I will go. Do not delay to choose Christ. One minute too late may be an eternity too late. Do not delay. But in Rebecca, we see our faith reflected back at us. Faith in an unseen groom who loves us because his word says he loves us. And we know he loves us because we have seen his glory at work. We have seen his glory at work. And finally, we switch to the groom. The groom. Verses 61 through 67. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode, to the cam- rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer-Leroy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her, cavil, for, from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So, he took a veil and co- so she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac came, brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You see, remember now, we had not seen Isaac since he had been on Mount Moriah. He is our example, Christ. He had been sacrificed there, and now he is coming back. He's returning to claim his bride. We know that's the next step for Jesus. He's coming back to claim his bride. Notice that she comes in the evening. We can see this as a time of spiritual darkness. A time of spiritual darkness. Again, I'm just saying maybe a time when Hamas has just created the worst attack probably in the history on Israel. A time when we have the worst apostasy in the West that the world has ever seen. More people leaving the church now than at any other point in time in history. Do not delay. One minute too late, maybe an eternity too late. But there's a time of spiritual darkness, and Rebecca sees him off in the distance, and she dismounts from her camel, and she covers herself. She covers herself as a sign of modesty and propriety, because it's the right thing to do. 
because she is the perfect spotless bride that the Son deserves. The church will be the perfect spotless bride of Christ. We also see the servant come back and he gives an account of everything he's done. If the servant is our actions, that's what we're going to do with Christ as well. We're going to give him an account of everything we've done. And at the same time, you have a wedding, you have a judgment. The wedding and judgment go together. He's going to marry the bride and judge the servant at the same time. But here's the sticking point. Here's the point that I found the most interesting. Rebecca loves Isaac. She's been told about how great he is. She's been given examples of how great he is. And Isaac loves her. But we don't know why Isaac loves her. Isaac has never seen her before. He doesn't know her in any way. We can understand why Rebecca loves Isaac. But we don't know what Isaac sees in Rebecca. And honestly, I don't know what Christ sees in me. There's nothing good in me either. His love, His glory, His grace. God's love, God's glory, God's grace are the only reasons we are redeemed. There is nothing inside of us. Isaac loves Rebecca because of who Isaac is. Christ loves us because of who Christ is, not because of who I am. And so finally, the bride and the groom are together. And she can claim everything he owns, just as we are joint heirs with Christ and we're able to claim everything that he owns. Most importantly, primarily, and most wonderfully, access to God. We will get to be with him. That's what we're doing. That's what it's all about. We have access to God through the blood of the Lamb. In conclusion, Abraham's story ends with a final love scene. He has found a bride for his son. Both are happy. The covenant will continue, and Abraham's descendants will be innumerable, all the way down to us here today. In this chapter, we see a reflection of our actions, a reflection of our faith, and a reflection of Christ coming to claim his church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.